0: Okay, that's the one. It's so a wonderful book. She got it. Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the security seminar. Uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce today's speaker, uh, Dr. Steve Bellavin. Uh, Steve is the Percy K. and Vito L. W. Hudson Professor of Computer Science at Columbia University. And Steve uh, is a, a true pioneer of uh, both networking and security. Um, he received, uh, in, in uh, 1995, he received the UsNIC Lifetime Achievement Award uh, for creating NetNews uh, when he was a graduate student. And I believe that's also when Steve uh, started, uh, met um, uh, Professor Stafford online, and then soon after uh, in person. Um, And uh, Steve is also co-author of the book Firewalls and Internet Security, the first book on firewall. Um, He received the 2007 NIST NSA and National Computer Security Systems Award uh, and has been elected to Cybersecurity Hall of Fame. Um, Steve is a member of the National Academy of Engineering and (coughs) has also served as the chief technologist of the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, So today, uh, Steve will talk about uh, law for hacking. Thank you.
1: Okay, it's still here. It, it it went black. That's probably why. Let me try and plug it in again. It's it's always the. Uh, if this doesn't work, I plug in my flash drive. That's why I carry a flash drive with my talk. I think it should
0: be coming back. Yeah. yeah,
1: we go. Almost here. Almost here. Yeah. Uh, now where where did it go? Here we go. Okay we pause for technical difficulties okay so more and more of my time i find i'm spending on things that are not really quote computer security unquote i do history of cryptography a lot of fun and i do a lot of public policy work about half of my professional effort these days is on where technology meets policy especially when it comes to privacy surveillance and uh, in the us the 4th amendment and Really, the issue today is wiretapping, and it used to be easy. You take, you know, phone lines were just twisted pairs running all the way from your house to Phone Company Central's office or a a switchboard. I'm just barely old enough to remember actually seeing a switchboard like this, a plug-and-cord switchboard in person. When I was about five years old, I saw one, Uh, but just, you know, pair of alligator clips and headphones on the, on the twisted pair, you could wiretap very easily. You didn't really need a lot of technology. So once upon a time, law enforcement had it good, also legally. in uh, First time a wiretapping case hit the Supreme Court, sometime in the 1920s, a case known as Olmstead, the court held that this was not a search within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment, so no search warrant was needed. They reversed that in 1967, a case known as Katz. Modern wiretapping for people for the people who still have traditional telephone lines, a vanishing percentage at this point, is about the same. Instead of the alligator clips and sitting out on a cold rainy day with the earphones, they take this device over here called a loop extender. You attach one pair of wires in the loop extender to the targets phone line. You take another twisted pair going back to the central office that's not in use, and you attach, that's called the friendly pair, and you attach the other pair of wires to the friendly pair, and you can sit in a nice warm office to listen to your target instead. And rather than listening the whole time with earphones, you use this nice small tape recorder. So this tape recorder is also the kind that they use for... uh, you, You carrying a wire? Yeah, that's the kind of tape recorder that they use. These days, of course, we have an mp3 recorder, but Small and robust. Uh, these pictures are from my friend Matt Blaise, who studies surveillance and likes to collect interesting gear. <laughs> Things started changing for law enforcement around 19, late 1979, though they didn't— wasn't realized immediately to be a threat to traditional wiretapping. Uh, when you have touch-tone phones, you can send signals after the call is set up, not just for actually dialing. And in 1979, a couple of competitive long-distance companies, Sprint and MCI—Sprint is still around, what was MCI is now part of Verizon— filed to become alternate long-distance carriers. Because of the regulatory climate of the time, You dialed a local number to connect to Sprinter MCI, you dialed your account number with Touchstones, then you dialed the actual number you wanted to connect to. Suddenly what was part of the phone call was not part of the phone call anymore, it was dialing information. You didn't have this nice, neat separation boundary. You start getting redialing services of various sorts, prepaid telephone credit cards for example. The original number dialed might not be the number of interest. So wiretapping was already getting more complicated. And you get extra services like call forwarding. Uh, you tapping somebody's line, but the person's not home. They're off someplace else, and their number is forwarded someplace else. And it, life was starting to get harder. The, the FBI, for all that I have and probably will make nasty comments about them, saw this coming earlier than most. They knew there was a problem. It was, as it turned out, what they, most of what they anticipated to be a problem wasn't technology went in a different direction than they anticipated. But they were already having problems about cell phones. <coughs> Imagine yourself as a prosecutor in the 1980s, a state prosecutor in the 1980s, when cell phones were very unusual, going to a judge, say, in New York, the story of a woman I knew, and telling the judge that you want to get a wiretap order for what looks to the judge like a California phone number. And the judge has not heard of cell phones. Say, what? I don't have jurisdiction in San Francisco. No, Your Honor, this is New York, but it's a California phone number. Yes, Your Honor, I understand that. They knew that there were more changes coming. So they got Congress to pass a law known as (laughs) Calia, the Communications Assistance to Law Enforcement Act. It was a controversial act at the time. For me, it was actually good, because it was one of the two things that got me involved in doing public policy as a professional activity. The other was cryptography, I'll get to it in a little while. But they got Congress to pass this law called Kalea, And what Kalea said is, we don't care how you build your phone network. We don't care if it's traditional twisted pair, or cell phones, or ISDN, which they thought at the time would be the hot, high-speed data networking thing because it had the truly magnificent speed for the day of 128 kilobits per second. That was preposterously high. In 1992, 4800 bits per second was unusually high, and most people were at 1200 bits per second. So, hey, tenfold increase, that's great. 100, don't you all want to be online at 128 kilobits a second? However, you implement your phone technology, whatever it is, there has to be a standard interface in the phone switch. And the FBI or local law enforcement can plug into this standard interface and say, tap this phone number. And everything else just works. It's up to you, as the phone switch designer, as the telephone company, to. Engineered to configure things appropriately so this simple interface works. The interface isn't so simple, the code is even less simple, but the thought was make wiretapping about as simple as two alligator clips on a twisted pair were in 1920. And this was a very popular idea with lots of governments around the world, more or less Every country, certainly every developed country, has a similar law. The generic name is Lawful Intercept. It sounds like a great idea from law enforcement's perspective. Some of us were warning that this was a dangerous notion, and we were right. Lawful Intercept is a deliberate backdoor. It is designed to let somebody else listen to a phone call. And in theory, only law enforcement can get at it, but hey, this is code. Phone switches are among the most complicated pieces of software you are going to find. A modern phone switch, what's the population of this town? About
0: 120,000. About
1: 120,000. Probably within the reach of a single, maybe two, AT&T 5 ESSs. And you will have a separate microprocessor for every line card serving every telephone. So every telephone in this town, back when everyone had a landline, AT&T, had a separate microprocessor all plugged into one backplane. Massively massively distributed system. Very, very complex code. For a while, when I was at Bell Labs, I was in the research uh, department, software engineering research department for the phone switch developers, so I got to see up close and personal how complicated this code base was. Uh, it's a computer. It's hackable. And in Athens, Athens, Greece, not the one in Georgia, somebody, just who is not known, though there's been a lot of speculation, hacked a mobile phone switch. In particular, they abused the lawful intercept mechanism that, uh, I think it was Ericsson had, by law, had to build into their phone switches. And they used it to tap about a hundred different mobile phones up to and including the prime ministers. You know, phone switches do not run Windows. They don't run Linux. They're not programmed in C. Uh, Whoever did this was skilled in arcane programming languages and and unusual programming environments. Most hackers do not have a 5ESS or an Ericsson mobile phone switch in their basements to experiment with. So everyone is pretty confident this was an intelligence agency. Which country? Take your guess. All, and they, they relayed the intercepted calls to another one of three mobile phones bought over the counter for cash at some store in Athens. So we don't know who it was, we just know that because the calls were being relayed out through the same tower that was in roughly, oh, call it one and a half kilometer, two kilometer radius of a particular point, which includes the prime minister's office, which includes a number of embassies, including the U.S. embassy. Take your choice. Pick your government. Some high-end intelligence agency did this hack, and it would not have been possible had the lawful intercept capability not been present. It takes a lot of code to do something like this, but thank you. Ericsson had already done the hard work. All they had to do was install the extra little bit of software. Who installed it, how it was installed, is not known to this day. If you want to know what is known, here's the article to read. By the way, an older version of this talk is on my web page with all these nice clickable URLs. It's called the Athens Affair, and it's very much worth reading. It's a lesson in humility for software developers. Don't assume you're going to get the security mechanisms right. The problem isn't just Greece. There were laps procedural, etc. lapses by a Vodafone Greece. It's not just Ericsson switches. At one point, the NSA tested every Kaliya compliant phone switch sold in the U.S., and every single one of them had security problems. There was a larger abuse of the lawful intercept capability in Italy. Thousands of people affected. That's what has gotten less publicity. <laughs> Some of the attacks on Google five years ago attributed to China, the target of those attacks was a database showing which users were the subject of wiretap orders. Was this at the request of the Chinese government? I don't know, but I have my bets. And there are rumors, not substantiated, that the Russian mob has hacked into Kalia interfaces in the U.S. to spy on law enforcement. So. Yeah, this is a problem. We built in this deliberate back door to let law enforcement uh, conduct its legally authorized wiretaps, but we can't really control who uses this door. And other people seem to be using it as well. And then technology changed again. And for all that CALEA seemed to be the nice architecture and technology-independent solution in 1994, technology changed in a way that the FBI didn't anticipate and that no one in Congress, I suspect, could even conceive of back in 1994. Remember that in 1994, the Internet was very, very new, not known to most people. PCs did not have the TCP IP built in until Windows 95. So most people could not get online. If you got online, you were in the minority, you did it by dialing up to AOL and let them get on the internet for you. So this was something completely new to Congress, which is not made up of technologists, thank you. So voice over IP ended up having a very different architecture than uh, Congress had anticipated. And Skype was preposterously different. Lots of other forms of communication. Should these be covered by Kalia? How? Let's take a look at VoIP, voice over IP. When I, if I want to get local phone service, I'm dealing with a provider who's physically present in my town. The maximum run of twisted pair, more or less no matter what you do, is five or six thousand meters. You can't run the, tw- the signal. just will degrade too much if you go past that uh, range. And at the very worst, you can have a remote concentrator node to terminate the analog signal, convert it to bits, or amplify it, or some such. If I'm dealing with a VoIP provider, I don't have to know or care where the provider is. I'm connecting to them over the internet. On the internet, everybody is local. So my VoIP provider could be in another country, one that's not subject to U.S. jurisdiction. The person I'm calling might be a customer of a different VoIP provider, again, in another country. The signaling messages, I'm dialing a phone number, goes to my from me to my VoIP provider, to the recipient's VoIP provider, to the recipient's computer or phone. That's one path. I can be sitting in an Internet cafe, half a country away from my residence, Dealing with a VoIP provider in another country, and the same could be true of the person I'm going to talk to. Where do you put the Kalia tap? Physical proximity is no longer necessary. You know, if a phone company in your town, in your county, doesn't comply with Kalia, they can be fined, and if they don't want to comply, a federal marshal can go walk up to the door and nail a big Signed to the door saying, you know, seized by order of U.S. District Judge so-and-so. Physical presence, you've got means of enforcement. You don't even have a legal means of enforcement, let alone a, a practical one against someone in a country that doesn't want to cooperate. Good luck trying to serve a U.S. wiretap order on a Russian VoIP pro- provider or a Chinese VoIP provider. It's just not going to happen. Where do you put the Kalia tap? The architecture doesn't work anymore. And even if you put the tap on the switches and get the call setup messages, messages, the call itself doesn't go over the same path. The call can go directly from one phone to another over the two local ISPs. You're not going to get the voice path. Different facilities. And then we had Skype, which a uh, FCC report called uh, truly bizarre architecture, and it's original, (laughs) it's, 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 Microsoft has changed, Microsoft owns Skype, they've changed the architecture for their own reasons. Some people think it's because they're trying to make it easier for the FBI to spy. Microsoft's explanation is to accommodate mobile phones. I suspect that that's correct. It was a peer-to-peer network. Your calls were being relayed over random other computers on the Internet. Do you trust this random other computer of your law enforcement to have the Kaliya software, and to uh, honor the wiretap requests? Maybe, but the next call is going to go through somebody else's random computer. It doesn't work anymore. This architecture is not compatible, and it's end-to-end encrypted. Well, we now know by the, from the Snowden revelations that the NSA has managed to crack this, but that's a separate story. There's no place to put a Kaliyah-like tap anymore. So what do we do? And beyond that, there are lots of other ways to communicate today. Well, this email, which the FBI wasn't thinking about in 1994, even though it existed. Text messages and all their variants. Snapchat. You want to go bug Snapchat? Voice communication and multiplayer games. You stop fighting the dragon uh, long enough to say, okay, the plot is on, I'll I'll meet you at the corner of 3rd and Main tomorrow. It's a different communication channel, it's not covered by Kalia. Voice over IM systems, you can do this. I can send text messages over Skype, I can switch to voice, I can switch to video, and more. There are more and more ways to communicate, none of which are covered by Kalia. CALEA was expanded by order of the FCC, upheld by federal court, I think incorrectly as a matter of law, but I don't get a vote on that, to cover local access links to ISPs. But a lot of the stuff is encrypted. And the real action is at the application level. So for the last several years, the FBI has been advocating changes to CALEA to cover all these other services. What they want is for all communication services, or at least all of the major ones, to include a wiretap interface. Not just phone switches, but everything. If you're going to have a, you know, World World of Warcraft uh, 17 or something, and it's got voice communication, you put in a KALIA interface. Text message service, put in a KALIA interface. Something I can't comprehend of, put in a KALIA interface. No bill has been introduced yet, but the FBI keeps going to Congress and say, we're going dark. That's what they call it, the going dark problem. We can't do these wiretaps. It's not clear how big a problem this really is. I just saw some numbers this afternoon, haven't even had a chance to fully digest them. The U.S., the FBI did, I think, about 2,800, 2,900 wiretap orders. It's actually up from about the usual average of about 2,000, 2100. About. 40 of the calls were encrypted, and in nine of them, they couldn't break the crypto, which means that in 31 of them, they could. But there aren't huge numbers of wiretaps, and but the FBI says they're going dark. The FBI will tell you, oh, we don't bother asking for a wiretap when it's something like Skype or Apple FaceTime, because we know we can't crack it. I, I can't say that one way or the other, I can say that the wiretap numbers have been pretty consistent from year to year. There are several problems with this notion of Calia too. If you try to do it, it's going to drive up costs, hinder innovation, and cede the Internet service market to other countries, which, if you're in another country, you might think is a great idea, but the FBI won't. How do you handle other countries' access requests? Okay. FBI gets uh, a request through the State Department from the UK to go tap some suspected uh, terrorist. Yeah, that would probably go along with that. And now you've got a request from Saudi Arabia for blasphemy, for China from China for supporting Falun Gong, and from Russia for uh, criticizing Putin or opposing the kleptocracy. Well. This is a, I won't say it's a harder call, it's very easy to say what the State Department will think of this, but how do you architect, how do you design a service that works in all of these scenarios, technically? It, it creates security problems, much like we saw in Athens and Rome. This is still software. But other than the fact that it won't work, it's a fine idea. You can't put a backdoor into open source software I can just imagine. Okay, here is my download of Ubuntu with the official Kali interface to my network stack. Thank you. This is open source. 27,39, delete. Great. Public key for the FBI? Let me change a few digits in there. Put it in the server. What server in Skype? It's end-to-end Skype, Apple FaceTime, are end-to-end encrypted. Where do you put the crypto on the, the intercept on the server? If you put it on the end system, it might, might not be noticeable. And how are you going to stop people from downloading software developed in other countries? A lot, you know, it doesn't take huge physical infrastructure to develop software. There's lots of popular software, including, I might add, Skype. That was not developed in the U.S. originally. It hinders innovation. Kalia is based on the implicit assumption that there's a trusted place to put the tap, the local phone company. And phone companies have historically been in bed with the government because, until not all that long ago, they were extremely highly regulated, especially local phone service is still quite regulated. Innovative designs don't handle, don't have central servers. Are you going to rule things out? If Skype, for a real telephone, a traditional phone company, they'd be one of the largest international carriers in the world. It's completely transformed the way people make international phone calls. But it would have been ruled out had Kalia been a requirement. If you impose this requirement for a law enforcement interface on the small innovative companies that are developing the new services, You're going to add a tremendous amount to their code base, probably buggy code because these people are app developers, not security software developers, and they're going to rule out certain solutions. And developers in countries that don't have such a law will get a market advantage. They can ship sooner, they can ship smaller, leaner, more correct code. Why do you want to do that? What countries' access requests do you live, do you uh, exceed, And, and how do you... How do you enforce this technically? Here's an example of a problem. This headline was in yesterday's New York Times. China is Apple's hottest iPhone market, and by the way, that's where the iPhones are manufactured. If I'm going to put a back door into iPhones, that's one of the requests I'll get to in a moment, how do I keep the Chinese government from demanding similar access? Do I really want U.S. business travelers to China being that exposed if I'm the FBI? No, of course not. And it creates security problems, and as a security and privacy guy, this is one of the more serious problems, problems from my perspective. The existing implementations are problematic at best, and these were done by skilled phone switch developers. In la- For large corporations, you don't whip up a phone switch in your basement. The code is too complex. You know, uh, back when I was working with the switch developers, it took considerably more than a day to, just to do the compilation. The code is that complex, and it's very specialized code, I might add. can uh, give a whole separate talk on how you design a phone switch for serious reliability. For now, I will say that phone switch outages due to software are the same ballpark as switch outages due to hardware, and the hardware is also reliable and replicated. They got the software that reliable. The problem you're trying to solve with Calia is much less well understood than making a phone call. We've known how to build phone switches for about 125 years. We've known how to do electronic phone switches for 35 to 40 years. And though I might add, the 1980s AT&T had a hell of a bad problem trying to build a five ESS. That's a separate lecture, one I'm probably not allowed to give still for my time at AT AT&T. And these developers are not security experts. If their own product-specific code is home-developed, they will undoubtedly have more serious security problems, and the attackers won't know how it works. The attackers figured out how the Ericsson code worked, and that was a much harder problem. But other than all that, it's a fine idea. We have another problem that's heated up just in the last few months. Now rewind again to the 1990s, the other thing that got me involved in public policy, it's called the crypto wars. In the 1990s and be earlier, export of cryptography was restricted by U.S. law. It was ammunition. You can't export tanks or missiles or encryption algorithms. Nobody outside the country is capable of reading the NIST standard for AES and implementing it, right? Uh, you needed an export export license. Despite that, of course, people somehow outside the U.S. were managing to do this, or buying U.S. products that had it and somehow managing to export it. And so the government pushed a notion known as key escrow, embodied in something called the clipper chip. And the notion was that anything encrypted with this clipper chip would have extra field attached to it, that would have an encrypted copy of the key that only the government could decrypt and use that to actually read the session. It was bitterly opposed by virtually every technologist who called it inherently horribly insecure. I talked to a former prosecutor. She told me she was terrified of it. Well, don't you need it to go tap the phone calls of these drug gangs? That's she was work what she was working on. No, that's exactly why I'm terrified of it. The drug gangs, she felt, had so much money and so much force and were so ruthless that they were going to get through all the safeguards and get into the database of all these escrowed keys and be able to listen to anybody else's calls. She had a tremendous amount of respect for their power and their ruthlessness. She was terrified of Clipper. Eventually, the government gave up. There was no market. They tried persuading people. There was no market. They also saw jobs and contracts going abroad to countries that didn't restrict crypto exports. And they said, we are losing, not only losing this war, trying to win it is hurting the economy. So by 2000, it was over. It's back. In recent years, especially the last six months or so, the FBI has been asking, they don't want to call it a back door anymore. They're calling it a front door or a golden key. <laughs> I, I, I can't make this up. I'm, I'm, I'm quoting the director of the FBI. This is a golden key to let only the good guys in. I once wrote an April 1st RFC on what's called the evil bit. Any packets for hacking have to have the evil bit set, therefore the firewall knows to drop them. Uh, that's about what they want, except they, they want... They'll call it the angelic bit. This is a th- this request is coming from the FBI. Only we can set this bit. Let us in. And they want it not just for communications but for devices. You know, uh, these f- iPhones are now strongly encrypted, and Apple can't break it, even with a warrant. And this has the FBI horribly upset. There's a hearing on Capitol Hill today, where, you know. Law enforcement agents warning of dire consequences if something isn't done. You also have people like my friend and colleague Matt Blaze saying, you can't do this, it just doesn't work technically. The NSA and Homeland Security have joined the FBI. The NSA was standing on the sidelines with the clipper chip. They designed it, but their heart really wasn't in it. Their enemies were not going to listen to U.S. law and buy U.S. devices, so they had to go figure out ways to work around it anyway, this time they're saying they need it. NIST, also a government agency, has stated publicly that they think this is a bad idea. So is virtually every other non-government technologist. and I suspect a lot of people inside the NSA, I've heard there have been published reports that a lot of people inside the NSA don't think this is that great an idea either. It will be buggy, It will be insecure and the international aspects are, if anything, more difficult. So what do we do about this? How do we solve the lawful access problem that the FBI says they have? How do we let them get in if we cannot provide them with Kalia, if we cannot provide them with golden keys? I think the first question is, is there even a problem? It is not obvious. Some people say that this is actually the golden age of surveillance because newer services are creating a vast amount of metadata. That's a word that's become very popular in the last two years. Thank you, Mr. Snowden. It's all of the data about communications. Who calls whom is extremely useful to law enforcement, even without the content. But, and these newer services are creating a tremendous amount of metadata. Skype leaks IP addresses. Even though it's end to end encrypted, it's leaking IP addresses. And we're all carrying tracking devices that they can use to track your location anytime. Uh, I'm sorry, I call it a phone. They call it a tracking device. In fact, there's something called a tower dump. Local police officer will go to the local wireless company and say, Here, here's a court order. Actually, they usually don't bother with court orders. They say, where they get a very low-grade, easy-to-obtain court order and say, tell me all the phone numbers that were associated with this tower during this period. I wonder how many of those are being used right now in Baltimore to find out who was in a riot-torn area at certain times. Mobile phones are person-specific. You call, you rewind twenty years before mobile phones were the norm. You call somebody's house, you're going to get their spouse, their kids, the babysitter, the plumber, or maybe the target of interest. In fact, they're actually law enforcement procedures for what to do. They call it minimization. You have somebody listening in on the call, and they hear the wrong person. They stop recording for a while. They start recording in a couple of minutes later to see, oh, it's two mobsters' spouses chatting for a while before they turn the phones over to the actual target, to throw off the FBI agents. They're clever, they'll come back on in a couple of minutes to to wiretap some more. Mobile phone, you're probably the only one who answers your phone. You're certain to get the target of interest. Cloud-based email services like Gmail, Yahoo Mail, and Outlook.com make preservation of data a priority. They're really good at keeping data and not deleting it. The official claims of dire consequences if we don't get rid of this uh, secure communication have not historically proven true. These nine encrypted calls they couldn't break through, that's actually the first time I've heard a number that's as high as nine. Usually the number is about one, maybe two. So we have not really seen the previous predictions of doom and gloom come true. Most criminals don't really cover their tracks very well. They're pretty stupid. Uh, the fact, that I, I was actually, the one time I went, ever went to oral arguments at the Supreme Court, I heard Justice Scalia say uh, in, about these words, we've never held that the police can't take advantage of the fact that most crooks are stupid. It's not a, not a principle of U.S. law. They don't have, it doesn't have to be a fair game in that respect. And when there is a target that they're really interested in, despite strong cryptographic defenses, Like the Silk Road, they can take it down. They know how to do this. It's a question of the effort they have to exert. But suppose there is a problem. What should law enforcement do? So our proposal, this is joint work with uh, Matt Blaze from Penn, one of his PhD students, Sandy Clark, and Susan Landau, a professor of cybersecurity policy at Worcester Polytech. Our proposal is, hack the endpoints. Don't go through strong security like the crypto. Go around it. Hack the endpoints. Capture the conversation before encryption or after decryption. Install your tap in the microphone driver, in the audio driver. What do you need all this crypto stuff for? Or maybe just send out a few extra packets with the session key encrypted in the FBI's public key. Is it legal for the FBI to hack? Can they do it? Will this lead to more security holes in our software? In the U.S., the ability of the FBI, of any police agency, to do things like wiretaps is governed by the Fourth Amendment, the text of which you see before you. It turns out the Fourth Amendment does not say police need a warrant before they search. It says, no unreasonable searches are allowed. What is reasonable? What is unreasonable? If you have a warrant, it's by definition reasonable. Although there are guidelines saying warrants generally be served between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. Waking hours, I don't know about you. I'm not up at 6 a.m., but okay, that's what the rules say. And particularity, particularly describing what you want to seize. Judges can and do issue court orders saying you police officer so-and-so, FBI special agent so-and-so, have the right to hack this particular computer to find this particular data. Why? Because this is a way to carry out the search. It's probably... I don't believe that this authority has ever seriously been challenged in court. It would probably be upheld, even though there is no specific statutory authorization for it. It is being done today. We do suggest a new statute along the lines of the wiretap law, which is called Title III in the law of biz. It's Title III of the 1968 Omnibus Safe Streets and Crime Control Act, uh, Title III, uh, to specify the conditions in which it can be done. Wiretaps, for example, require what's known as a super warrant. You actually have to satisfy a bunch of other conditions about why you should be allowed to do something as intrusive as a wiretap. Software intrusions, hacking is even more intrusive. Let's put those conditions on it. And is it feasible? I think that's the most interesting question. Today's systems are a buggy. Once a month, on Patch Tuesday, Microsoft releases their patches. Almost every month, there are several critical vulnerabilities. You, you don't have to do anything. And get, but you get infected. Microsoft has put a tremendous amount of effort into security in the last dozen or so years. Have a tremendous amount of respect. Windows eight is probably the most secure commercial operating system out there. And I'm a Mac user. Uh, they still get, they still have critical vulnerabilities almost every month. And that's to say nothing of say Adobe, which has critical vulnerability in Flash about every week. Uh, there's a market for these things, so-called zero days, holes switch, which no patches exist. It's kind of an underground market, or a gray market. It's legal in the U.S., but it's not talked about very much. Most of the customers are intelligence agencies from one country or another. But the intelligence agencies are buying so much, it's not going to add very much demand to the market. Law enforcement's not doing that many taps. And if the government has to develop its own, The FBI already has a lab that knows how to do things like this, the Domestic Communications Assistance Center. They can develop this software for local law enforcement. They can find the new holes and integrate them into the actual wiretap software. The market for vulnerabilities is big. You get a nice, juicy vulnerability, you can sell it for six figures, sometimes high six figures. There are rumors that iPhone holes zero days go for $500,000. There's a guy named Charlie Miller. He used, he's an ex-NSA hacker. These days he puts most of his energy into hacking cars. Uh, he's been quite successful, thank you. Uh, he sold one vulnerability he found for, he won't say exactly how much, but probably six figures to an unnamed government agency. He's on the record as saying this. There's enough other evidence supporting this claim. Some of these people will sell to all buyers. Some will sell only to governments they trust. Some will sell to all buyers, but lie about it. You know, it's not a... You don't buy this on the New York Hack Exchange. Here are some numbers from a few years ago. Today's numbers are probably very similar. About how many zero days were found. And every month you see large numbers of zero days being found by different organizations or being reported on bug track. These are not a scarce resource. Yeah, not all of them are going to be applicable to all people. You know, you're not going to get into this machine with a uh, bug in Internet Explorer. You're not going to get in with a bug in Flash because I don't have it, let it anywhere near my computer. Uh, our code is still buggy. Our code will always be buggy. We're not going to hurt security by using this lawful hacking. The bugs are already there. We're not creating the problem, we're taking advantage of it. And in fact, we want to fix it. We advocate a mandatory reporting requirement. When a government agency learns of a zero-day, it must report it to the vendor promptly. Experimental evidence indicates that they still have the better part of a year to actually use it before it was fixed in any significant number of machines. So even if they report it immediately, they've got most of a year to use it at which point they get a new one. So when they find this, or buy this, or develop it, they'll report it and there'll be a patch. So it's going to help security, not hurt it. And most of the actual wiretap code is vulnerability independent. The code to actually hook into the the audio drive or export the session key, that doesn't depend on a new hole. that depends on the release of the operating system. Major releases come about once every several years, and even then those interfaces don't change much. Oh, I need a different zero-day because Microsoft just patched that one? Fine. I'll use this Adobe one instead. Plug it in, get into the system, the rest of the code remains the same. So how do you do it? You scan the target or the target network. Yeah, You've got to allow for NATs and multiple devices and so on. You figure out the operating system and software used. Okay, this one my passive fingerprinting suggests that this one's a Mac. It's calling out to uh, Apple for updates, therefore it's a Mac. Oh, that one's packet formats, time to live, looks like Windows, fine. Pull out the Microsoft codebook. book. select a selective vulnerability and build the tapping package. And install it, however you need to install it. A drive by download, infected attachment, hack into it directly from the outside maybe even a black bag job, break it to someone's residence, plant it that way. But that's the easy part. You don't want the bad guys reusing this tapping code. Especially you don't want them finding out about your zero days which can be turned against you. So you obfuscate the code. You strongly tie the tapping package to the target machine. If you look at some of the uh, military-grade hacks. By the way, if, you, if you're interested in that subject, I highly recommend Kim Zetter's book on Stuxnet, Countdown to Zero Day. She described uh, the Flame package. It's related to Stuxnet, probably came from one of the same intelligence agencies, which seems to be the U—most people say it's the U.S. and or Israel. And uh, the actual payload of Flame is encrypted with values-specific to the actual intended target machines. If it's on some other machine, it won't decrypt, so it won't run. So you hack into the machine, you know, pull out a few important registry keys, MAC addresses, what have you, and you encrypt your tapping package. It spreads someplace else. No one else can even decrypt it. Use the DRM techniques. You know, the software vendors are already using this on the commercial operating systems to tie particular piece of commercial software to a particular piece of hardware. I cannot, I can pull some app off my phone and give it to you on your phone, it's not going to run. Use the same mechanism. Is it perfect? No. Does it work well enough in most cases? Yes. In fact, you don't even need the vulnerability most of the time. You use the vulnerability to get into a machine, download the actual tapping software, then erase the vulnerability exploit. It's called a, a loader dropper architecture. It's well known in the malware world, and law enforcement can use it well. So we standard techniques to conceal the actual vulnerabilities, which are the things of most interest. So the full picture. Law enforcement, maybe the private sector, labs, find holes, develop the exploit tools. New holes get reported to the vendor, but then you've got, you know, ten months or so. When the need arises, you get a scanning warrant from the judge authorizing you to scan the target's network, figure out the operating system, the applications, the versions, and so on. Get a hacking warrant, build your package, and plant the wiretap code. It doesn't introduce new security holes the way CALEA-2 or Golden Keys would. It doesn't care about national boundaries. Could China do this? Yes. Could Russia do this? Israel? France? Yes, of course. But they can do it today. It's not helped by the FBI doing it the way a Kalia-2 would help these agencies. The mandatory reporting element will help overall security. The new law... Well, first of all, require a public debate about do we actually want people doing this? Do we want law enforcement hacking? Do we need a super-warrant requirement? We've never had that debate. We should. And difficult legal issues like, how do you resolve the fact that I've hacked into a computer with the particularity requirement of the Fourth Amendment? After all, the requirement says, Maybe it's these files on a machine, not everything on the computer. The Supreme Court has already recognized in a case known as Riley that cell phones have a tremendous amount of sensitive information, like nothing ever in history has had. We need this particularity. We've never had this debate. This is one way to do it. So, this is what we advocate. Don't weaken the Internet with uh, new requirements for new backdoors. Use the existing calls for hacking. If you uh, want more reading, two papers by myself and my colleagues. On, uh, a more technically-oriented paper called Going Bright in IEEE Security and Privacy. Uh, a legal and policy-oriented one. Uh, it's a law review article. Law review articles are long. This one's about 70 pages and one-third footnotes by volume. Uh, you, every factual statement in a law review article needs a footnote. I believe that lawyers really wish they could put footnotes on their footnotes, but they can't. Uh, but this explores in fairly gory detail what some of these legal issues and requirements are. This white paper from CDT about Kalia II, and even a New York Times editorial, there's more recent stuff from the last very few months about crypto, as I said. There's, been, there's a hearing on the Hill going went on today. I'm looking, to, anxious to go see the news reports about what was said and done, but uh, I'm hoping that Congress will see sense on that and not try this really bad idea mandate. So, questions, please? No questions? you got to have some questions. Don't you want to know why I use a Mac instead of Windows when I said Windows is more secure? I'll give you the answer to that one. For one thing, I'm a lot more productive. The purpose of a computer is not to be secure. It's to do something. I'm more productive on Macs than Windows. Apple made decisions correctly that Microsoft made incorrectly just in terms of the user interface. Besides. It's Unix underneath, and there's a shell and a command line, and all the powerful Unix tools, and I can, you know, crazy pipelines with egrep and awk, and all the other fun things that drive me crazy with their absence on Windows. But uh, I tried to run it securely, but being secure, you know, actually, uh, Spaff is known for his line that. Uh, using secure, crypt- strong crypto on the internet is like using an armored car to transport money from someone living on a cardboard box to someone sleeping on a park bench. Uh, that's <laughs> another way to justify this. Uh, thing. It's probably his most famous line.
0: Yeah. Um, so uh, you're talking about you know utilizing bugs for a purpose other than uh, basically monitoring. Um, how common is it for uh, how common is it to utilize you know bugs that were so-called bugs that were actually introduced into certain pieces of code than actually stumbling upon something that, you know, probably people... In other words, is law enforcement actually pressuring vendors to
1: introduce bugs? There is no evidence for that one way or the other. Uh, It is fairly clear that most companies would resist. It's not less clear that they'd have the ability to. It's not clear at all how much cooperation from Microsoft the NSA had when they found out how to crack Skype. Uh, we know from the Snowden revelations that the uh, NSA has tried to sabotage crypto standards. The evidence them sabotaging code, I don't know any. Uh, even the evidence from sabotaging crypto, other than the uh, dual EC uh, random number generator, is exceedingly slim. The strongest case could be made for DES Shortening the key length to 56 bits, uh, and I can I, I could argue that one both ways. That 56 bits was the right engineering number given the overall design of DES, the technology of the time. There's so I don't. There's no evidence for the proposition that they're deliberately sabotaging the
0: code. I mean, for for example, the um, the hard bleed that existed, you know, that was found last April. Um, is, is there any evidence that, you know, that that might have been intentional or no. it was just a bug that... Would... There, is, there is no evidence for it whatsoever. Okay. Uh, it's
1: very easily explained by a cut and paste error and editing error. You know, <laughs> things, the, look, things like this can be done subtly. Some years ago, I won't say how many years, I opened my morning newspaper and found that Three people had just been arrested for hacking, one of whom was working on an important project that I was associated with. Oh boy. So I went to management with this, and I put together a, with their permission and encouragement, I put together an audit team to go look at the code base. We knew when the person had joined the project. we had a good source code control system. So we knew what we had to look at. And we started doing an audit of the code. I found one clear, convincing security hole. The commit log showed who did it, just another member of the audit team, good friend of mine. She said her reaction was, Oh my god, I put that, I did that. Simple bug. But then I found some other code. It was a combination of two independent bugs. Neither alone was a security hole. The two bugs together plus a common misconfiguration added up to a security hole. The comments, by the way, did not agree with the code one of the two bugs, but for various reasons that I will not go into, that was very plausibly a cut-and-paste error. So, was this a very clever backdoor? Or did I just stumble onto something really improbable? I think that was the most improbable bug I ever found. Uh, to this day, I don't know. Of the three people who were arrested, one was one pleaded guilty, uh, one was acquitted, and the third pleaded no contest. So I, I, to this day, I've encountered that individual since then at conferences and so on. I do not know whether I've never had the nerve to ask him if he left that in there deliberately. But no, I've not. Se- I've not seen any evidence for this proposition. Heartbleed. I would have liked to have seen the commit logs from the Apple source code control system. Obviously, they have one of those, whether it's Git or SVN or CVS or what have you. Mm -hmm. But that's the the only way to resolve it. I don't think that that was. The White House has officially denied that that was planted. I suspect, I believe that. It it doesn't have the right feel to me. And OpenSSL is such a horribly buggy piece of code anyway. (laughs) Other questions? I did mention dual EC. It was actually one of the, if you look at it simplistically, it sounds like a really great way to put a backdoor into crypto. After all, it's really a public key algorithm. uh, If you don't have the private key, you can't decrypt it. So it's not opening the door to the Chinese or the Russians, only the NSA. If you look at it that way, you're looking at it incorrectly. You have to look at it from a systems perspective. It is not one person looking at an intercept and going over to the HSM, the high security module that's got the private key and saying, decrypt this for me. It is a whole system with many intercepts coming from many people to many analysts, all of whom have authorized access to this key, which by the way has got to be replicated because if you have just the one HSM and there's a hardware failure, you lose the key, you've lost all that careful engineering and you can never recover this private key either, because if you can, the Chinese and the Russians can. So this key, private key is backed up, and there are a lot of people who have legitimate ability to get at it. Do you trust every one of these people and all the process and procedures necessary to get at it, especially when you roll that out beyond the NSA and give it to every law enforcement agency in the country? How do you secure the total system, including the people, including uh, Edward Snowden's uh, sister-in-law's cousin, or spiritual sister-in-law's cousin who's going to do the same thing, except it's not Edward Snowden doing a, a leak for the public good. It's someone like uh, Kim Philby. you know the name Kim Philby? Yeah, you would. Uh, <laughs> Philby was a trusted senior U.S. government official, a lot of access in the CIA and MI5 and MI6, post-World War II. He was also a Soviet agent and turned over everything juicy to the Soviets before he got word that they were on to him and defected. Uh, one of, have you heard of Project Venona? The Soviets during World War II and thereafter, shortly, for a little while thereafter, were reusing their one-time pads, which is a cryptographic no-no, to use the precise technical term. And the NSA and its ancestor, uh, the Armed Forces signal, Security Agency, had discovered this and were able to break Soviet spy traffic because of this until Philby told the Soviets what was going on. And that's among the most closely held things that the NSA, that the NSA could have had. Philby betrayed it. The Soviets caught on and recalled all those one-time pads and issued new ones. How do you know that some spiritual descendant of Kim Philby is not in the NSA right now as one of these authorized analysts? You don't know. You have to look at this as a system. It's not individual components. It's a system. A system of communication, a system of key management, a system of intercept, a system of cryptanalysis, or lawful access. If you don't look at it that broadly, you will not understand the problem. All of this is an issue. Yeah? I think our it's got one minute left. It says, let's talk quickly. Okay.
0: So uh, I think it came out in the Snowden leaks that NSA and other security agencies collect these zero days uh, to kind of target uh, international targets or uh, specific uh, high interest targets. So uh, don't you think, like uh, keeping that whole wiretap issue aside, that particular statute to uh, kind of report these to the vendors should be put in
1: in, uh, in the law. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's difficult to enforce. be easier to enforce if it was part of the total wiretap solution. It's one of the reasons we advocate a new law to formalize, legalize, regularize the hacking process, but also to ensure the reporting to improve security. Uh, you remember, improving security is a crime prevention mechanism, a national security advantage as well. So it all goes together and now we're out of, now we're off the air. I'm happy to stick around and answer more questions, but we're off the air.
0: thank Thank you.